Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Columbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, really glad you're with us today for the Wednesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Now just six days until midterm election day. 2022 and yesterday jim before we get into our martinis today we do have a good a bad and a crazy um we were uh talking about chris sununu going on meet the press on sunday he's the new hampshire governor he'd been a guest of ours earlier in the year i think it was back in may and uh you made the comment tongue-in-cheek that it looks like every politician that's running for election or re-election this year who's been on the three martini lunch is going to win it's going to be a 100 percent re-election rate He's the only one, but he is up big. And then we find out from uh, one of his top staffers, who was extraordinarily helpful in arranging that interview uh, earlier this year, uh, that not only did we name drop Chris Sununu yesterday, we got name dropped in his debate last night. Take a listen. You've said you're a pro-choice governor, but on a national conservative podcast called Three Martini Lunch, you said, quote, I'm the first governor in 40 years to sign an abortion ban. Republican governors before me never signed that. I've done more on the pro-life issue, if you will, than anyone. So if you're a pro-choice governor, why make those comments? Jim, I have to give you credit. You were the one who asked him the questions about abortion. It made it into a number of different reports not long after the interview, and it makes it on to the debate stage. Never say the three martini lunch doesn't have great impact. We break the news. We make the news. And let's face it, we are the true power brokers in the country. Uh, And look, you know, there are other candidates, other folks we'd like to have on this program. But to be perfectly honest, there are a lot of candidates we would not like to have on this program. So don't call us. We'll call you. <laughs> That's exactly. Actually, maybe we won't. We'll, we'll talk. Should we have that person? And maybe we'll get around to inviting you. Maybe we won't. We'll see. <laughs> you could. You can ping us, but you know, don't expect a reply. <laughs> yeah, as we've said all along, if it's uh, an opportunity and it's a really good one, we'll uh, we'll do it. Uh, but it's certainly not going to be uh, a regular part of the show because you know you like us best, just us, right? Anyway. So, uh, but anyway, thanks again to Governor Sununu for joining us, and uh, hey, thanks to the moderator for giving us a shout out. That's pretty nice. All right, on to our good martini now, Jim, and uh, back to the midterm elections and couple different aspects that, again, make it seem as though momentum is definitely headed in the direction of uh, the Republicans right now. Both of these uh, stories are kind of predictable, but one in particular uh, is definitely uh, interesting from a conservative perspective, and that is the Cook Political Report. Uh, These folks are certainly not conservatives. I think they try to play it straight down the middle, much like Larry Sabato, because in the end, they're projecting results, and uh, you know the results are going to be what they are. So pretending otherwise isn't going to help your reputation much. And so they have now come out with a new set of projections just yesterday uh, saying, Cook Political House rating changes. Ten more blue state districts move in Republicans' direction, including California 47, Representative Katie Porter, from lean Democrat to toss-up. These are deep blue states. Uh, in Oregon, for example... Uh, Schrader, who is considered a more moderate Democrat, lost to a more radical Democrat. That's now lean R, so that's a potential pickup opportunity. There are a couple others that uh, are now shifting from lean Democrat to toss-up, including 
New York three and four. Others moving from likely Democrat to lean Democrat. So they could still go to the Dems, but it's going to be a lot harder. And that's why they're pumping so much money into it, like we talked about yesterday. And some have gone from solid to likely. So um, it's not like we're going to get all these 10 seats. But I think the Republicans clearly have the momentum. And then the other story that we have is a lot of these pollsters, which had showed just a few weeks ago, uh, Democrats on the generic ballot doing better uh, than Republicans all lining up now uh, with the others who are saying Republicans have at least uh, a few point edge in that. Could be that they're finally seeing what everybody else is seeing or they just want their polling results to not be embarrassing yet again come Election Day. So what do you make of these two things? Greg, I should first specify that the Charlie Cook who does the Cook Political Report and the Charlie Cook who is with National Review and who I do the editor's podcast with are two different Charlie Cooks. The one I work with is Charles C.W. Cook with the British accent that is, you know, worthwhile of conquering the world. And the other Charlie Cook has been around Washington for a very long time, does this kind of uh, race analysis and, and very complicated number crunching. The Cook Political Report, I believe, tries to call it down the middle. Uh, their subscriber base are people who really need to know who's going to uh, very much the Capitol Hill lobbying firm, uh, people who have an enormous level of literally financial investment in who's going to win each seat. Um, so they want the, the best information they can get. And I think that if they're doing this, this is a uh, pretty clear movement. And I think the what we're seeing in the polling numbers also echoes that. Nobody wants to be that far off. Nobody wants to be remembered as the Quinnipiac saying that, oh, Jamie Harrison's got a good shot. And then watching him lose by 10. Uh, Greg, before we started taping, I came across a spreadsheet of the 67 House races that have party spending in one form or another. Could be the national, uh, the national Republican or National Democratic congressional committees, um, various other uh, leadership funds, various other you know uh, leadership committees, all, all these other groups and the the races they have dumped money into, and there's 67 uh, seats up here. Now some of these sums are I'm going to call modest, you know, five figure sums, but most of them are at least a million dollars. Most of them are actually you know, uh, are considerably beyond that. And in addition to having a lot more Biden held seats than Trump held seats, in fact, as I look over this list of 67 seats, I am counting districts that Trump won in 2020. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13. This is the kind of exciting live <laughs> session you get on this podcast. So 13. Also, you can tell I'm doing this thinking while we're recording. But anyway, 67 <laughs> seats, 13 are ones uh, that Trump won in 2020. The majority of them are by Biden. And just looking at the bottom of the list, where a bunch of these are seats where the Republicans did not run much, did not spend any money at all. Um, for example, the California 9th District between Republican Thomas Patty and Democrat Josh Harder. I was looking at this. This is not a... Uh, I think it's around Stockton, California. It's a, not one where you kind of expect Republicans to be competitive in. And Biden won that district by 12 points. The fact that Democrats, National Party committees felt they need to spend $93,000, eh, that's not a ton of money, but that's something kind of interesting. Much more comparably, if you look at, say, New York's third congressional district, you know, again, Biden won that by eight points. And the Democrats spent $389,000. There are a bunch of these races where the Democrats, you know, have spent hundreds of thousands of dollars and Republicans have spent either uh, smaller amounts or, or you know, maybe they've spent hundreds of thousands, but it still adds up to less. And there's just a whole bunch of Biden districts on here. Some of them, you know, Biden by 14, Biden by 19, Biden by 
12. By, you know, these are all districts you'd think would be pretty safe for Democrats, and they felt the need to spend money on them. Now, does this mean Republicans are going to win all of them? No, by no stretch of the imagination. But it just says the battlefield is on territory that's very friendly for Republicans. They really don't have to defend that many seats. And it's kind of surprising considering how they're starting with 212 seats. And they have a whole bunch of targets that, with this wind at their back, could end up falling in their pile when all is said and done on election night. This is really kind of revealing. And again, it all, if you don't like polling numbers, you think they're biased, you think not enough people answer their phones, okay, fine, you can do that. Committees don't spend money just for the heck of it. They're not going to spend money in a safe seat if they, you know, just to make the incumbent feel good. So my guess is if they're spending money, they're kind of feel at least a little bit nervous about them. And I think that's pretty revealing about the state of this midterm election right now. No, that's absolutely right, Jim. Good point. And I would say two things. First of all, I'm sure you're like me, where you're at the point in the campaign season where if you type just the letter R into your browser, the default is Real Clear Politics latest polls. <laughs> yeah. Gu- guilty as charged. Guilty. <laughs> but the other thing is, and this is the oldest cliche in the political book, these projections only matter if you show up and vote. And I think Republicans are more than motivated to vote, independents who are fed up with the current state of affairs, and even a lot of Democrats uh, who just uh, think that their party's gone completely off the rails. So the key now, get out there and vote. Make sure that we're not (laughs) surprised in a really bad way uh, come Tuesday. But uh, I think we're going to be in pretty good shape. All right, on to our bad martini now, Jim. And just when you thought that we had more than enough uh, international hotspots on our plate, Add Iran. Yeah, we got, of course, the Russians and Ukraine and the nuclear saber rattling. We've got the Chinese and whatever the heck they did to Hu Jintao a couple of weeks ago by yanking him out of the, uh, the, the Communist Party meeting there. And now there's Iran, of course. Uh, Iran is in the midst of a uh, potential revolution, certainly mass protests in the streets, the women in the hijabs, the, uh, the demand for freedoms. It's an inspiring sight that we should probably be talking about more. But, uh, of course, this administration, quiet as a church mouse because they want to get their nuclear deal done. They claim if they got too uh, verbal about it that it would uh, feed into the regime's narrative that uh, it's just the uh, U.S. Uh, astroturf type protest. Protests. Well, that's not how it worked when uh, Ronald Reagan, uh, you know, supported solidarity and the others uh, trying to tear down the Iron Curtain in the 1980s. But as it relates to Iran right now, this is from Reuters. The United States is concerned about threats from Iran against Saudi Arabia and will not hesitate to respond if necessary. A White House spokesman said Tuesday, quote, we are concerned about the threat picture and we will remain in constant contact through military and intelligence channels with the Saudis. We will not hesitate to act in the defense of our interests and partners in the region. The official spoke after the Wall Street Journal reported that Saudi Arabia has shared intelligence with the U.S. warning of an imminent attack from Iran on targets in the kingdom. And so, Jim, you know, some people will say, well, you know, how much can you trust the Saudis? And you should take what the Saudis say with a grain of salt. But uh, when it comes to the Saudis versus the Iranians, I know which side uh, you kind of have to be more concerned about in the region, the nuclear one, and that would be the Iranians. This whole divide was kind of the premise for the Trump approach towards the Abraham Accords, building uh, that coalition of uh, relations between Israel and some of these Arab states with the behind the scenes blessing, we have to assume, of the Saudis to counter Iran's hegemonic ambitions in the region. So what do you make of, uh, of Iran and the fact that the U.S. seems to be ready to protect our allies there? 
Well, if you're looking for, I guess, a good lining of a bad martini, it is that it appears, based on this news, that U.S.-Saudi intelligence sharing has not ended and has probably not been too harmed by the tensions and perhaps outright full-blown hostility between President Biden and Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. Uh, I suppose there's nothing like a shared threat to get people to put aside their differences and focus on dealing with that threat. Having said that, the Biden administration's entire approach to the Middle East seems completely upside down. I'm not going to, you know, dispute that the relationship with Saudi Arabia is very complicated. I don't doubt that there had to be some clear U.S. response to the killing of Khashoggi. At the time, I recommended something like telling the Saudi Arabians, you have to sit in the timeout chair for a year. And in about a year, we will withdraw. We will denounce you. We will withdraw our our uh, diplomat. We will. 50 lashes with a wet noodle would probably be a really inappropriate metaphor here. But basically, some sort of symbolic gesture of we disapprove. You can't do this. And in about a year, when public outrage had you know died down somewhat, we could re- go back to status quo ante, back to the normal kind of relationship between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia. Instead, Biden said he was going to make them a global pariah. And we've seen the escalating tensions. And of course, the once the oil prices got high enough, it became clear that, oh, U.S. does need to continue its arms sales. The U.S. does have an interest in them. They're the guardians of Mecca and Medina. They have a great deal of influence in the Arab world. And Biden went over there. There was the, you know, god awful fist bump picture. And then Saudi, Saudi Arabia turned around and screwed us at the OPEC meeting anyway. So you are in a situation where things have gotten worse and worse with the Saudi Arabians. And again, this is a regime that does not believe anything resembling religious tolerance, does not believe in democracy. The human rights record is terrible. We have legitimate reasons to have problems with the Saudis. But then you look across the Persian Gulf at Iran, and there's just no, there's nothing redeeming there, or at least not in the regime, not the people. Um, this is a utterly, you know, horrible, you know, the human rights record is as bad as Saudi Arabia's. They're trying to develop a nuclear weapon. They've been a sponsor of terrorism all around the world for decades. Why are we trying to reach out to them? There's a National Review editorial from the entitled Break Off the Stalled Iran Negotiations. I don't want to talk too much out of school, but I believe the original draft and I saw in there was something along the lines of, for God's sake, break off the stalled Iran negotiations. We're now really in the second year of this, and the Biden administration has nothing to show for it. They keep thinking, oh, we haven't bent over backwards enough for them. Oh, we haven't made enough concessions or something like that. And this entire mentality of, well, we can't we can't publicly support the protesters in Iran because then it'll play into propaganda of the regime that it's U.S. supported. Well, one, the, the regime's going to say it. You're, it's U.S. supported either way. So why don't you support them? What do you think you get by not supporting them? What's your Trump card? What's your what's your big bonus you get from not coming out and saying these women are right? They have been treated like crap. Their human rights record of this regime is terrible, and we hope that they succeed. Best case scenario, they all topple the regime, and you don't have to deal with this regime anymore. That's that's the jackpot. That's the best case scenario. Will it shake out that way? I don't know, but I think they'd be better. They'd rather have the U.S. openly on their side than not on their side. You almost wonder if the Biden administration doesn't want to see the Iranian regime tumble because then it means these past two years of negotiations were a waste of time. Of course, they were a waste of time anyway. So it's a it's a circular logic at work at the administration here. I can only imagine what uh, Joe Biden would say about it if he knew what was going on. <laughs> No, that's exactly right. But yeah, you're right. Because of the Obama legacy of the deal, for them to uh, support uh, these protesters to the point of uh, of regime collapsing would be to admit that they dealt with a regime not worthy of being dealt with. And I think you're never going to get to that point. 
with this bunch. But uh, Jim, as, as they like to say sometimes in political chatter, whose music is that coming in? Oh, it's Benjamin Netanyahu. Just when you thought his political <laughs> career was over, it looks like he's going to be back in as Israeli prime minister. The votes aren't officially and fully counted yet, but uh, everyone seems to think that uh, he's going to have a relatively safe majority, at least at the beginning, in the Knesset. And uh, I don't think they're popping a lot of champagne corks in Tehran right now. Greg, I just want to add that Bibi Netanyahu's music is We Will Rock You by Queen, played by a klezmer band. Um <laughs> So, by the way, I was thinking about this because if you're if you have a long enough memory, you can remember Bibi Netanyahu leading Israel back in the 90s. And one of the, you know, most of the time, U.S. presidents try not to get too involved in uh, other countries' political disputes. Generally, the Democrats are closer to whatever the left of center party in another country is. And uh, Republicans are closer to a right of center party. I remember the Clinton team really didn't like Netanyahu. And I remember, you know, I think it might have been Carvel and Begala, but a bunch of Clinton consultants went out to work uh, for the left of center parties out in Israel. And I'm sure the first time Netanyahu was defeated, uh, a bunch of Democrats like, ha, well, at least we don't have to deal with him anymore. <laughs> of course, that he came back. And then most recently when Netanyahu was defeated, after they had like three or four elections because they kept having uh, parliamentary elections where nobody got a clear majority and they couldn't form a coalition. And they're like, ah, well, Netanyahu's gone. Well, at least we won't have to deal with him again. <laughs> and he's back yet again. So I, I don't know if he's listened to Arnold Schwarzenegger, but you want to talk about like incredibly influential figures in Israeli history. Netanyahu is putting himself up on that upper, upper echelon these days. Now, Jim, the other fascinating thing is that uh, with the Clinton administration meddling with the uh, Israeli elections in the late 90s, probably hoping to make some sort of permanent change in Israeli politics, they did. They helped to get Ehud Barak elected as the Labor Party prime minister, but the next few years were not good. And that's how we ended up with uh, Ariel Sharon. He created a new party, and then Israeli politics really shifted away from labor. They're kind of a blip on the political radar over there. The whole paradigm of Israeli politics has Shifted quite a bit since um, Netanyahu's first go around as prime minister back in the 90s. All right, Jim, on to our crazy martini now. And uh, Joe Biden is finally, finally out on the campaign trail in states that are completely lopsided in one direction or the other. Yesterday he was in Florida. I've heard he's going to New Mexico. There are a couple of tight races in New Mexico, including the governor's race. But then he's going to be in California. Illinois, and he's going to finish his week in Maryland, where I'm pretty sure the Republican gubernatorial candidate isn't even at 30%. Uh, but nonetheless, he is also going to be giving prime time remarks tonight on the importance of protecting democracy. It's part of his final pitch to voters heading into the midterms. This is from uh, MSNBC. And Jim, the way this story is phrased uh, reminds us a lot of that kind of really bizarre, dark speech he gave in front of Independence Hall just before Labor Day. Uh, the statement from Deputy White House Chief of Staff Jen O'Malley says, President Biden has been speaking about democracy for the entire time he's been in office and before then. And I think you can expect to hear from him this evening, similar to what he's been saying over the course of the last several months, that there is a lot at stake, including democracy. And everyone has a role in that. Well, Jim, on some level, that's insane, of course. On another level, I welcome it because the first time he tried this at Independence Hall, it landed like a lead balloon, although it probably got buried a little bit in Labor Day weekend. But just in case you don't remember, here's some of what he had to say back then in Philadelphia. This is about MAGA in general. 
Too much of what's happening in our country today is not normal. Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans represent an extremism that threatens the very foundations of our republic. Now, I want to be very clear, very clear up front. <clears throat> not every Republican, not even the majority of Republicans are MAGA Republicans. Not every Republican embraces their extreme ideology. I know, because I've been able to work with these mainstream Republicans. But there's no question that the Republican Party today is dominated, driven, and intimidated by Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans. And, of course, if you don't remember, he talked about how extremism looks a whole lot like uh, the Republican agenda, according to him. MAGA forces are determined to take this country backwards. Backwards to an America where there is no right to choose, no right to privacy, no right to contraception, no right to marry who you love. And so, Jim, most of that right there was just lies, of course. Uh, and then he's trying to paint Republicans as the radicals unless you allow abortion up to birth, I guess. But on the larger democracy question, you know, it's curious coming from a guy whose party spent a lot of money in the primaries trying to get people they saw as radicals to be the Republican nominees, leaving them one vote away from becoming governors, senators, congressmen, or what have you. Clearly, clearly, they're really worried about this threat. Yes, I was going to say tens of billions of dollars across, you know, 16 races or so. Basically, the president's closing message is the only way to save democracy is to have a one-party state. Also, this does appear that Biden is in reruns. Um, this is basically <laughs> the same speech that he gave over at Independence Hall. We'll see if there's anything new or different, but I'm not really expecting too much. And I think it's probably revealing. They're closing on this. Um, I, I don't think there, there's an allusion to abortion in it, but I don't think that... Uh, That'll be the centerpiece of this. This won't be certainly on the economy. I don't think there's any kind of a record to, to mention there. He won't be talking about inflation. He won't be talking about the border. He won't be talking about schools. He won't be talking about crime. Now, the choice of location by Biden giving the speech at Union Station, not too far from Capitol Hill. I don't know if I mentioned this when I went up to New York earlier this fall. Um, Union Station used to be a fairly thriving big city train station. And the last time I was there, the mood was almost post-apocalyptic. Uh, a lot of businesses shut down during the, the uh, uh, during the pandemic. Obviously, it's the small businesses that got hit the hardest. But even the Starbucks shut down. They said they had a problem with crime and homelessness and people who were bothering customers. The place is abandoned, and so it's a, a very it's strange way a heavy-handed metaphor by having Biden speak at that location tonight. We'll see what he says, but I somehow I don't think this will be the game changer that Democrats are looking for. Speaking of game, he's going up against Game Four of the World Series too. So I'm, uh, you know, guessing a lot of people are going to be paying attention to that, especially people in Pennsylvania. Uh, anyway, and Houston, of course. Uh, Jim, we'll see what he has to say and if it was different at all. Uh, I'm actually going to be out the next couple of days. I have the privilege of interviewing some of America's uh, military heroes from uh, World War II all the way up to the present. We've got a big conference we're uh, going to be at uh, here over the next several days. So Chad Benson will be in for me, but I know there will be no shortage of things. For for you guys to discuss. So, uh, Jim, I will talk to you on Monday, but uh, everyone else will hear you tomorrow. See you Monday, Greg. Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Uh, don't forget to subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch podcast if you don't already. Please tell a friend about us as well. Thank you also very much for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. We greatly appreciate those. 
Get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch Podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Go out and buy Jim's new book, Gathering Five Storms, and the accompanying short story, Saving the Devil. Have a great Wednesday. And join Jim and Chad on Thursday for the next Three Martini Lunch. This week on the Federalist Radio Hour. The Arizona race is such an, an interesting one because Blake Masters, from at least my perspective, is a very good candidate and a good sort of glimpse at what the future of the Republican Party could and should be. But it's telling also when that money sort of came out, whether that was personal, whether it was just we need to spend this money elsewhere, or it was we don't like the new guard. I'm Emily Jashinsky of The Federalist. Subscribe to The Federalist on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.